Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. you've been living in a cave. Uh, you saw the three American troops were killed yesterday in a drone strike at a U.S. base in Jordan, not in Iraq, not in Syria. This base is located in Jordan on the border between Iraq and Syria. And uh, the U.S. does run a base called Altanif just north of it. This is certainly something that we unfortunately have all been waiting for and hoping wouldn't happen. Today, it's Monday. Uh, my co-host, a friend and colleague, uh, Joe Trusman, who's a senior research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal. Joe primarily focuses on Palestinian terrorist organizations, Hezbollah, and all things related to uh, terror attacks on Israel and the region. Joe, great talking to you again. It's good to have you on on Monday. I appreciate it, Bill. Thank you. And we're joined today by our friend and colleague, Bradley Bowman. Senior Director at the Center for Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Brad focuses on U.S. defense strategy and policy. Previously, Brad served as a national security advisor to members of the Senate Armed Service, as well as the Foreign Relations Committees. Brad was an active duty U.S. Army officer, served as a Black Hawk pilot, and also an assistant professor at West Point. Brad, it's great to have you on Generation Jihad. Thanks for coming on today on short notice. Oh, thank you, Bill. It's a real honor and privilege. Joe, good to see you too. When we uh, saw this, this unfortunate attack, which we have been warning, Brad has, Joe has, I have, we've been, we've been saying it's just a matter of time. The problem with going with a defensive strategy, if you can call it that, in Iraq and in Syria when absorbing these attacks, as well as what we're doing in, with the Houthis is, is we have to be successful in defending 100% of the time and the enemy only needs to slip one through. And that's what happened this weekend. We have three American soldiers dead, 34 wounded, eight of them are said to have been seriously wounded. Uh, Joe, what do we know about this attack? Uh, who do we think carried this attack out? Has there been any claim? Uh, has anyone claimed credit? So, like you mentioned in the beginning, it was a, a drone strike, or rather a drone attack on a base in Jordan against U.S. troops. So, uh, CENTCOM published a press release yesterday morning saying that three servicemen were killed. And at first, initially, they said about 20, 25, 24 around there were, were injured. But later, that number increased. The injuries, it went up to 34, I believe. There may be more now. Regardless, 34 injured. And, uh, you know, initially there was a little bit of confusion that I saw for exactly where it happened. CENTCOM was saying, or rather the United States was saying it happened in Jordan. And then in the Jordanian authorities, the Jordanian spokesperson said, oh no, it happened in Syria, but it actually happened in Jordan. Yeah. That tower 22 is the base. Right. It's right, right inside the border. It is inside, indeed inside, uh, Jordan. Right. And maybe the Jordanian authorities were trying to deflect or I, I don't know. They didn't want to admit that something happened in, within their borders. Right. Uh, with U.S. military personnel. And I suspect, Joe, too, with this, like, you know, with all of the, the militias are claiming these attacks are in support of the Hamas. So the Jordanians don't want to be seen as hosting the occupier who's supporting 
the um you know the dreaded zionists in in <laughs> israel i suspect we get a little bit of that going on everybody wants seems to want to distance themselves from uh israel and from the united states these days right yeah oh yeah and jordan's been yeah it's been bad with jordan as far as this this war has been going on regardless it happened as far as who did it islamic resistance in iraq which is basically an umbrella group it's made up of front organizations and militias backed by iran made up of like established organizations hezbollah brigades harakat al-nujaba and others right they use this umbrella group to claim attacks against not only american forces american troops but israelis as well or israeli territory so they've been doing that frequently and we've talked a lot about this of course since the october 7th war started but the islamic resistance in iraq has been around before way before the October 7th war came around. So there aren't really, they aren't technically new. However, there are foreign organizations who did it. It was probably, it, it could be a number of groups. Uh, we don't know, but I, what we do know for sure is that president Biden uh, said yesterday, right after the attack, right after the information came out that Iran backed groups were, uh, were responsible for the attack. So that's the big thing. And it's a no brainer, right? With everything happening there. So that's the latest information. You know, it, it, as far as, you know, which specific group, I mean, does it matter at this point in time? Maybe these, all these militias, they're backed by Iran. They're all part of the popular mobilization forces or popular mobilization units, which is essentially becoming the IRGC in Iraq. Uh, and so we know that Iranians have a hand in this just by supporting these groups. The Iranians are denying any type of responsibility, but we all know that that's uh, just you know, bunk at this point. Brad, just before we jumped on, you sent me an interesting piece of information that we may have some insight on how this drone, and when we're talking about a drone here, we're talking about a kamikaze drone. This isn't like a drone that's launched missiles, like a Reaper, a Hellfire, you know, the fires Hellfires. This is a drone that's designed, a one-way drone to impact and, and explode. You had passed some information along, Brad, that we may know how this drone got through the air defense. Tell us about that. Yeah, no, thanks, Bill. And, and full credit to my colleague, Ryan Brobst, a senior research analyst within our, our center who flagged it for me and, and uh, I was passing it along. This is a Wall Street Journal report dated January 29th, uh, 11.51 a.m. by Nancy Yusuf, Michael Gordon and, and company. They're reporting here. And, and as, as you suggested, you know, it's, it's early hours and often first reports are wrong, but this does sound credible to me. And it's certainly a uh, credible, serious reporters saying this, that they said the U.S. failed to stop the, the attack on the outpost in Jordan when the enemy, a drone, approached its target at the same time a U.S. drone was also returning to base. So you mentioned I'm a, I'm a former Blackhawk pilot. We had, you know, we used to have IFF, identify friend or foe, where you would squawk something and that would help others know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and, and to respond accordingly. So if this reporting is correct, it would suggest that there's a vulnerability there uh, that either our adversaries got lucky, if you will, or they knew about this and took advantage of it. It's unclear, probably the former rather than the latter, but that's what their Wall Street Journal reporting suggests, that um, they took advantage of this window where we uh, we evidently confused um, uh, an enemy drone with a friendly drone, and, and that's what enabled this horrible attack to happen. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly needs to we, if this is report is true and look nancy and michael they are top-notch reporters as you noted brad and also friends of ours um we i do trust when they report something like this 
But if that's true, yeah, we certainly need to get to the bottom of that and resolve. If that was an accident, um, we need to get to the bottom of that. And if they if, if they intentionally exploited that as well, um, I, I am a little surprised if that's true. But again, after doing this for as long as I've been doing it, Brad, I'm sure you could attest yeah. to this as well. Nothing yeah. really shocks me anymore. I, I agree. I think uh, sometimes a lot of a lot of Americans, uh, you know, we watch one too many Hollywood movies, oh. and, and we think. Uh, a theme I think you've probably hit through the years, uh, so I'm full deference to you. But um, you know, we think uh, the U.S. military has the all-seeing eye. We can see everything, and we can press a big red button in the basement of the Pentagon, and all the bad guys blow up simultaneously. And and those of us who've been in unpleasant places or done this for a while know that that's just not the way it works. Yeah, let me. Uh, I'm gonna. It's funny. I had this conversation with someone just this morning, a friend um, in the military, and. Um, all right, I, I'm going to admit it. I I watch it. I can't even remember the name of it, but there's Transformer movies. They're, you know, <laughs> unplug your brain. But there's the one where they're fighting on the Sinai at the at the um, or I'm sorry at the um, the pyramids, right? And then you know the U.S. has to have a response, and the generals, you know, in the command center. And the next thing you know, out of midair, you know, Air Air Force uh, F-22s materialize out of yeah. nowhere and are launching yeah. strikes and the U S Marines are on the ground. Um, you know, amphibious assault and all of this, yeah. every, all this is going on. This is the image, the military. And by the way, the U S military had a big role in the, you know, this Michael Bay movie to that's the perception they want us to have, but things don't work this way. There's a lot of to organize an operation like that takes weeks to just get a, a Marine amphibious uh, brigade or a battalion to, to land somewhere is, is weeks and or maybe months of planning. So um, yeah, that's a great point, Brad. It's they have, they have us conditioned to thinking that our military is sort of omniscient, all powerful can, can project out of nowhere. But when, in the reality is, is something like if that, if this wall street journal report uh, is true, that is really more of the norm. It's the battlefield is a complex and confusing place. And it, it's just never as simple as the Transformers would have you believe. <laughs> I want to t- go down a rabbit hole, Bill. You don't no, go, go down it, Brad. Let's I, go. I, sometimes rabbit holes are fun. You tell me if this one's fun or not. But it, this is not un- what we're saying here about perceptions of U.S. military capability. In my experience, maybe yours and Joe's as well. Is not unrelated to kind of the the rife conspiracy theories that one finds in the Middle East, um, because uh, uh, a lot of folks, not just Americans, have this perception of the U.S. military. And when something like this happens, you know, hey, the U.S. military is the most powerful, capable military in the world. How the heck did this happen? And so they have to come up with some explanation that is conspiratorial to explain it, rather than you know, kind of the obvious thing that you know that hey, there was a vulnerability here that was exploited. You know that these things happen. You know, Clausewitzian friction on the bat fog and friction on the battlefield. And so um, uh, it's, it's not unrelated in my experience to kind of the rife conspiracy theories you also see in the Middle East as well. No, you're absolutely correct, Brad. You know, well, uh, one of the biggest ones is the U.S. created Al-Qaeda. The U.S. created the Islamic State. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard this actually from, I heard it about, a, um, well, uh, no, I didn't hear the one of uh, the Islamic State one, but I understand the origin from the U.S. created Al-Qaeda when I embedded with U.S. troops that were, I was used to embed with the military and police transition teams. And the Iraqi generals saw the U.S. generals, I'm not talking about like enlisted, they saw this immense U.S. military power and they couldn't understand how Al-Qaeda existed. So they would mention like, "Is did you guys create them? <laughs> well, why did you unleash Al-Qaeda on us? And we're like, it, it, 
this is it's it's a reality of what we face and it's it's based on i think some of you know hollywood has a a, a, a plays a part and there's a lot of reasons for it but the reality you know sometimes we you know never attribute to malice what can be attributed to stupidity often right seems to be where we are well um so brad has there been a uh we're nearing 24 hours for that attack. Has there been a U.S. response? You know, I, I, uh, Joe, unless you've seen something, I haven't. Um, you, we've seen the Biden administration. You know, if if I were if if I were advising the Biden administration currently, I would say, you know, you 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 would want to acknowledge the truth of what happened, and you'd want to say, you know, we will respond at a time and place of our choosing. And but you would want to be deliberately vague. Um, that's more or less. Um, obviously, you know, we don't want to give our adversaries uh, advance notice of what we're going to do for obvious reasons. Um, and that's more or less what I think uh, the administration has said thus far. But if you're going to set expectations like that, oh boy, you've got a real spanking coming, and then it's another slap on the wrist, then all you do is further undermine our deterrence, which is already weak. And and the silly, well, you know, maybe it's silly, maybe it's not, maybe it works for some of your listeners, maybe it doesn't. But the, the little. Uh, metaphor or analogy I've been using for a while now is, is the bodybuilder in the gym. I, I think we used this in our April um, uh, U.S. Saudi memo when I was trying to describe to Americans how the U.S. military is viewed in the Middle East by both partners and, and adversaries alike. Because we're the bodybuilder in the gym. We got the biggest muscles. No one questions the size of our muscles. They know we got the biggest muscles. We look, boy, we look good in the mirror, but they know we won't throw a punch. Or if we do throw a punch, it's going to be more of a slap than a punch. And at some points, the thugs are left with the impression that the muscles don't matter. You know, you, if you're, you, you can be Arnold Schwarzenegger, but if you're afraid to throw a punch, then the muscles don't matter. And that leaves the thugs with the impression they can do whatever the blank they want uh, and get away with it. And, um, and so, you know, uh, uh, when you have cost-free attacks, it doesn't take, um, you know, uh, Einstein to figure out you're going to get more of the same. And so we got to shift the cost-benefit uh, analysis, in my opinion, Bill and Joe, uh, of our adversaries. And um, and some of our adversaries just hate Americans and Jews and and everyone else so much that if they don't have missiles to launch at us or rockets, then they're going to throw sticks and stones. And so you have to deprive them of the means of murder. And and that's easier said than done. But I think the real danger here has been insufficient American strength. And I, I've been saying this since October seventh. You two as well. And I think American weakness and anemic responses invites more of the same. And that's sadly, I think, a large part of why we've found our, ourselves at this sad point with Americans being killed. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, Joe. So I'm wondering, so it's, you, know, you bring up a good point. So yesterday, after the, the news came out, there's a lot of prominent people, I'll just say, saying, you know, we need to strike uh, Iran hard, and, you know, uh, show them a lesson, basically restore deterrence. Uh, but what does that even does that actually even do anything really? Like, I'm just trying to figure out, trying to think, okay, well, what's going to hurt Iran? Because honestly, it's Iran behind everything, right? uh, really, especially with, specifically with this attack. I mean, we see, for example, we see the Israelis, what they're doing in Syria, right? They're um, at times and been doing a lot lately, especially after October 7th, they've been hitting, uh, they've been going after Iranian uh, so-called advisors in Syria, which I mean, they're uh, they're there to basically support this, uh, the uh, in military infrastructure of Hezbollah and, and other uh, and other groups. But um, but has that really deterred the Iranians from you know uh, from supporting these groups in Syria vis-a-vis -vis the Israelis? You know, I don't know. So what can I'm wondering what the Americans, what the United States can do? At least in this case, okay. Let's just talk about this case. We don't have to really go 
over into a you know into a broad strategy here but i wonder what these uh, the americans can do here to respond because listen we know that hitting warehouses and facilities isn't going to cut it right so i don't know i just wanted to you know you kind of touched on that on the last uh, yeah and brad before before you start dude, there's been about eight strikes comp- uh, as opposed to 160 strikes eight strikes by the u.s most of those targeting warehouses or insignificant targets versus 160 strikes against u.s bases in iraq and syria um so go ahead brad i just wanted to give a little context no, no that. thank you yeah no uh, in in our center of military and political power we've been tracking attacks and and you know i plus with an error of you know plus or minus one to three we're, we're we have us at 168 attacks as of recording here since October 17th in Iraq, Syria, and sadly now Jordan, and exactly a handful of responses. And your your point, Joe, and you're making a serious uh, point and you're asking great questions. You know, in some of these instances, when, before the U.S. responded, we saw vehicles pulling up and all the uh, all the individuals at these warehouses leaving before the U.S. strike comes in. So maybe, uh, you know, that so that's that's concerning, right? And that, that's curious. But yeah, no, I... I you know, I long ago uh, realized, and, and maybe you gentlemen did too, that, you know, this profession we're in is more art than science. So I'm not going to sit here and say, if we do X, then Y is going to happen. I, you know, I, I've, 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 I've done this too long. I have a little bit more humility than that. I mean, I know you too as well. So I, I, I don't think there's a panacea or silver bullet. I was trying to hint at that earlier when I said some of these adversaries are going to keep trying to attack us till the day they die because there's real ideology behind it that, you know, that doesn't sound real good at a Davos cocktail party, you know, when you say it, you know, they really do want to kill us and they really would like to exterminate the state of Israel and they'd love to repeat October 7th uh, over and over again. You know, that that makes me sound downright crazy at a Davos cocktail party, but, you know, good policy begins with a sober assessment of reality and that's the reality. So um, I I don't know for sure if if the administration takes my recommendation and responds with real strength and, and, and across multiple targets and is literally trying to take out as many RGC folks, uh, and certainly in Syria, if not Iraq, as possible. Uh, I'm not confident that that will lead to an immediate de- de-escalation. It may lead to a, a, probably more likely not an escalation. But what I'm confident of, I, so I, that's all con- informed conjecture on my part. What I'm confident of, if there are no consequences, these attacks will continue. And that's unacceptable. We can't have our adversaries with the impression that they can kill American service members and we shrug our shoulders. And that's darn close to where we're at right now. I think that as a matter of policy, and here I go being moralistic again, I think it's uh, we have a moral obligation. If we're going to have pull people from their homes in the United States and say, hey, you over there, you go stand between me and those who want to kill us. Uh, um, but I'm going to have you have one hand behind your back, or I'm not going to give you the means to defend yourself. or I'm not going to give you the political permission. That starts to get starts to be a moral element. And, and Bill, I'm thinking of your great analysis through the years on Afghanistan. You and I have agreed on a lot, you know, we, we, we hear back and forth, but you know, when, you, when you're going to put people in harm's way and, 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 um, and pull them from their families and have them at risk of not coming home, gosh, darn it, you got to give them the means to defend themselves and a means to accomplish the mission and come home safely. And I believe a U.S. military withdrawal from Syria and Iraq would be a disaster, but if you're going to put them there, gosh darn it, give them the means to defend themselves and the permission to do it. I know that was a little, you know, a little long and a little maybe unrelated, but hopefully it's interesting or helpful. <laughs> Not too long and more than related. You know, Brad, we're having a recruiting crisis here in the United States um, across the the military branches, and we and people are, you know, I've seen a lot of people wondering why. And look, there's a lot of reasons, and I don't want to get into the domestic side of it. But certainly from a policy side, we are asking people to fight wars. 
We have no intention of winning. We're putting them in positions where they're endangering themselves. Like nobody, you know, having enlisted myself, Brad, you served. We didn't do that to be cannon fodder. We didn't do that to be, you know, a pawn in some game that, that our government never intended to win. It's really hard. I find it, you know, I have people that ask me to this day, you know, should my son join the military? And I, it's a tough question for me to ask at this point in time. And these problems are only going to continue. There's a, the second or third order effects of not taking this, the threat of these attacks seriously in Iraq and in Syria. Um, and in with the Houthis as well, you know, it, it, we just, we haven't even kept, we can't, I don't think we could begin to calculate it, but none of it is good. Um, Brad, I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, no, Bill, another serious point you're making there. And, and, uh, you know, I've been watching the recruiting crisis a little bit as well. And, and uh, I'm sure you would agree, you know, there's not one explanation, but I think you're touching on something important there is that, you know, I, I, when you talk to recruiters and, and you look at, at some of the challenges, a lot of it comes down to the parents and often the moms, <laughs> frankly, about yeah. whether they want their sons or daughters to serve. And, and um, um, I, I, I'm confident that for many of those parents, not to mention the, the son or daughter, considering whether they want to enlist or go to OCS or to an academy is, you know, um, will I be given the means to accomplish my mission and, and come home? And, and, um, and even more broadly, I don't want to go too grand strategic here, but um, is what we have here as a country worth defending? <laughs> if we're spending all of our time telling our, our young people in our schools and uh, that, that we suck as a country, um, that we're just one big uh, uh, rolling dumpster fire and that we've done more bad things than good things. And you combine that with some of the, the more, um, uh, I'd say, extremist, uh, 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 dare I use the word, woke policies. And then you combine it with what you just said. That's a, that's a horrible cocktail of disincentives for people to want to raise their right hand and say, send me. Yeah, Brad, you you went where I wouldn't. I appreciate that. Thank no, you. No, no. I mean, you know, I, 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 some, you know, some people like the word woke. Some people don't. Um, and and some, you know, it's some shorthand. politicians are using using this for political gain. I, I'm trying to use it in a responsible, serious manner. And 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 um and you know, we we got to develop centrist policies here that can survive from one Republican or Democrat administration to the other. Otherwise, we're going to be going herky and jerky between extremes. And that's a gift to our adversaries. So, um, uh, yeah. So I think we have a recruiting crisis, recruiting crisis. The data varies on why it is, but I think these two or three things we talked about are undoubtedly in the mix. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to take us back to deterrence here. Um, look, I'm going to, I hate to quote myself and, and Joe here, but we're going to do it. And Brad, I know you've written and said similar things. We wrote, Joe and I wrote this on November 8th. I mean, this is what drives me crazy about this talk of deterrence and the administration's continuing to try to push a policy that we all know would fail. So this is what Joe and I said on, on, on November 8th. He said that, quote, the Biden administration's October 27th attempt to deter, deter Iran and its proxies from further strikes on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria has failed without seriously ex escalating U.S. attacks, which comes at its own risks, such as some of the smaller U.S. bases coming under significant fire, even being overrun. It is unlikely that U.S. strikes at the current level would deter Iran in the future. So here we are, what, three months later? And we, you know, and again, I want to stress, Brad, I know you, you have said very, very similar things 
that we were all three of us were talking that this is not the way to do deterrence, that it's it's not working. So I guess my question is to both of you. Um, has the, the time for deterrence passed? Is the U.S. capable of restoring de- deterrence? And if so, I know we touched on this a little bit. What would it take to re- restore deterrence? Or, you know, and, and again, I mean, if the answer is we can't, we, we literally would have to go to war, which is kind of where I come down on this. But I'm curious about your thoughts. Start with you, Brad. Oh, okay. I, I'm eager to hear from Jill on that good question. But um, yeah, no, it's a, an, um, here's how I would answer that question, Bill. I would say um, deterrence is a real thing. A lot of people in Washington use that term and they have no idea what they're talking exactly. about. Exactly. It's, it, a lot of people use the term strategy and they have, you know, every third document published in Washington has the word strategy on it, whether you're talking about the EPA or the Department of Defense. And usually it's got nothing to do with the strategy, right? Because the essence of strategy, of course, is the coordination of ends and means, the establishment of priorities, the allocation of finite resources, and the mitigation of risk. So if you're saying what you've accomplished in the past or what you want to accomplish in the future and you stop there, that is not a strategy. That is a Christmas wish list. So um, so one and then and a lot of people throwing around the word deterrence, you know, they wouldn't know the difference between deterrence and diplomacy if you hit them upside the head. And, and deterrence has two main elements as you know, I won't get wonky. Don't worry. But you both know this. But for, you know, the folks out there that aren't familiar with this, you know, there's deterrence by denial and deterrence by punishment. Denial is you. And by the way, deterrence is not what. I think about something or you think about something is about what our adversaries think. Exactly. Deterrence is in the mind of the adversary. Please, people at home, take notes if you don't know this. It's not what you think. It's not what Joe Biden thinks. It's not what I think. It's what our adversaries think. It's their perception. It's not reality. It's their perception. Perception of what? Can they accomplish their objective? Can they literally blow up that base? Can they do it? That's yes or no. And then question two, can we do it at an acceptable cost? That's the essence of deterrence. Those are the questions are ab- and how they answer those two questions determines whether they're deterred. And so uh, that sounds very nebulous. Can you bring it down to rubber meets the road? Sure. Yeah. Vladimir Putin concluded in early of uh, 2022 that he could accomplish his objectives in Ukraine at an acceptable cost. And so he launched the largest land invasion in Europe since World War II. Deterrence, sorry. Biden administration deterrence failed in Ukraine, saying it didn't is not accurate. NATO deterrence is held. Deterrence in Ukraine is not. We don't want deterrence to fail in Taiwan. If it does fail, then you think Ukraine was bad. Just you wait and see. So deterrence is a real thing. I saying you didn't mean it this way, but just in case anyone took it this way, to say that as deterrence passed, I mean, it's a real thing. It's like gravity. Is gravity over? No, it's going to continue to exist. What's it? The perceptions of our adversaries about whether they can do things we don't like and acceptable cost. That's going to continue to function. What I think you men, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is America have the political will, does Washington have the political will and the capability to do what is necessary to restore deterrence among key adversaries, including the Islamic Republic of Iran and its robust network of terror proxies that it's been using since 1979 to advance its objectives and displace counterpunches and consequences to everyone else, usually Arabs, anyone but the regime? The answer is, I think we have the capability. It's unclear to me whether we have the political will, and you have to have both. You can have the muscles, but if you don't throw a punch, deterrence is not going to work. So that, again, a little long-winded, but I hope I was responsive to your great question. No, not not too long-winded, and you're correct. That is exactly what I was referring to. Can we restore that, that 
that measure. It's deterrence. a political question. And and, and um, I, I am not, I, I here's what I predict. I predict, yeah, I'm not sure when this is going to be published, but I predict that we're going to see the Biden administration do a strong response, but not strong enough to accomplish what you're saying. That is my fear. Why? Because they're confusing the Islamic Republic of Iran for a nation state when it's really, really a radical Islamist, Islamic ideology, sick version of Islamic ideology in sheep's clothing, hiding as a nation state. Biden thinks as a nation state, and he thinks we need to do less in the Middle East to go deter China somewhere else, ignoring the fact that China's moving into the Middle East. Perfect. Joe, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah I'm going to echo what Brad said. I'm, I'm not going to... Bill and I have talked about this actually already, so... And I want to hear from Bill, but uh, it's simply just like Brad said, the will to go through uh, and achieve uh, an objective, right? That's the United States has shown that they don't do that enough. All right. Talk about Afghanistan and, and, and other wars and the, our foes, right? Uh, Iran and the, uh, the, the groups that it's back, that it backs sees that they know that that and we are seeing that with Israel and Hamas, where you just wait it out, the enemy or the foe, in this case it would be you know, the United States when it comes to Iran and uh, Iran and, and the United States, uh, they can, all they have to do is just wait it out, right? They're going to wait things out because they know that there's no, that the United States has the military might to do something, right? To accomplish an objective, but they just don't have the will to go through with it even if it takes months and years. So but I'll keep it at that because I know Bill wants to say something on it. So I'll, I'll let you go. No, so please. By all means. You know, <laughs> look, I, I'm convinced that um, if I've learned nothing in the almost 20 years that I've been doing this professionally, it's, it's about will. And that is something we have not shown, particularly this administration, Afghanistan, perfect example. It lost the will, the desire to remain engaged there. And I think Afghanistan triggered this series of events, it's what led Putin to be convinced that he can get away with invading Ukraine. I think we've lost our will in Afghanistan for, you know, both, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around there. Um, we certainly don't have the will in the Red Sea and Babel Menteb Strait and the Gulf of Aden against the Houthis. Look, I'm, I, I like to boil things down simply. Um, uh, I, look, I... If I'm going to, if I had to be in, in, in a, a street fight, I have one person that I know who's number one on my list and he's someone, you, if you're listening, um, hello, um, he's not the best fighter in the world. He's not the biggest guy on the planet, but he's got the, I know he has my back and I know he has the will to see it through. And that's who I want to take with me. If I'm going to, if I'm going to go to war. And we have not displayed, the United States government has not displayed will to, I, I don't know, maybe 15 years? I might, maybe I'm going back. Like I, I'm looking at this in long term. People think it's just when Biden came in and in, in 2021 and announced the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But I've seen this develop over time, over the last decade and a half. Um, Brad, I, I agree with, with your analysis as well. I suspect when this was one of the questions I had, um, you, um, you know, what will we do? And, and I, I believe we'll do just enough to make it look like we respond in a meaningful fashion, but not enough to impose real costs on Iran so it can say, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. And so this, I guess this begs the next question. What could be, if the U.S. had the will, 
what would a campaign to restore deterrence look like? What do you think? Else? Uh, I'll start with you, Brad. Uh, thanks, Bill. Um, r- real quick, if I may, I just I really agree with what you said about having concerns about the will of of Washington and Americans more more broadly to to do what's necessary to, to defend our core interests. I see a, a large and maybe growing gap between um, the the willingness to do what is necessary uh, uh, to defend ourselves, and and that's a scary thing to say, right? Because you know I, I, it's cliche to quote Sun Tzu, but you know, the acme of skill is to win without fighting. Right. And I think, uh, you know, a newsflash of uh, the PRC's red Sun Tzu. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, and, and, and look at, um, look at Ukraine right now. And, and then I'll answer your question, try to answer your question, Bill. Sorry for the, the, the diversion again, but I mean, we don't have a single U S service member fighting and dying in Ukraine. We're spending less than 3.5% over the same time period in, in providing security assistance to Ukraine that we're spending on the Pentagon. And for that affordable thing, that that investment that we can afford, I say for the long term, we're dealing body blows, the second leading conventional threat we confront in Russia. We're helping a, a beleaguered democracy continue to exist and not be exterminated. And we're reducing the likelihood of war between Russia and NATO, and we're sending a helpful deterrent message to Beijing, all for less than 3.5%. And yet here we are at a moment where it's looking like the party of Reagan is going to turn its back potentially at least some of them want to turn their back on Ukraine. So we're we're not even you know set aside you know leave you know 2 to 3000 you know troops in Iraq in Afghanistan we're not even willing to spend 3.4% of our budget uh to help a beleaguered democracy uh, oppose unprovoked kremlin aggression. So talk about a lack of political will. I so I agree with you and I think it's even worse. But what do we do to restore deterrence? Um you know, if I were um, if I were advising the president, I would I would say, Mr. President, we need the Defense Intelligence Agency, the our intelligence community more broadly, and the Pentagon to provide us a list of every IRGC uh, uh, position in Iraq and Syria. Uh, I would, uh, if in fact that um, Iranian vessel and that's been in and around the Red Sea has actually been helping with targeting of our vessels, U.S. flagged vessels, and 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 a targeting now of sailors in the Red Sea. Don't miss that point, right? It's not just the 168 attacks on our our ground troops, if you will, in Iraq and Syria. They're also trying to kill our sailors in the Red Sea. So I mean, it, it's starting to feel like for anyone who's been to Disney World, you know, you go to the little shooting gallery in the Wild West section. There, it's starting to feel like a shooting gallery for our service members. You know, Americans should maybe kind of take that personally. You know, the people, our best citizens. Are getting shot at repeatedly. They're in a shooting gallery, and so um, I, I I think you have to seriously look at um, putting some explosives on every IRGC facility in Syria. I'm focusing on Syria. Um, I don't want to give anyone a free pass in Iraq, but attacks in Iraq have. Uh, we could talk about. I think that gives uh, Iran opportunities to divide and conquer there and create political pressure in Baghdad that pushes us out. And so we could talk about that, how you weigh that. Um, but basically, any Iranian element at a minimum that outside of Iran, whether it be ground forces or naval forces, IRGC, not to mention the actual groups that did this, I think the burden of proof is on why you wouldn't hit them and screw the proportionality thing. The proportionality thing, that is a signal of weakness and a green light for more of the same that floats well in, in Brussels. But it's a it it it's, it 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 it's just going back to, to, to street brawling, like you said, Bill. Like if you walk up to those thugs that want to take your walls, hey, 
let, you know, I want to have a, 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 a respectful dialogue here. I want to hear your perspective. I want to hear heard. And, you know, if you punch me, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of punch you back, but nothing more than what you did. I mean, what is that guy? He laughs at you. He, he takes your wallet and then he kicks you five times in the gut because he thinks you're an idiot. That's about how I think this proportionality stuff is received <laughs> by our adversaries in the Middle East. Okay. Joe, go ahead. Yeah, well said. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll just say that Iran and its network of allies and proxies in the region, I think they're just more determined than in the United States. And, you know, and we, we, we see kind of that example sort of in right now in Gaza where Hamas is losing thousands of fighters, right? But they just keep going, right? And I'm not saying they're winning, but you could see that determination, right? I mean, Iran or, or the, the, the groups in Iraq or uh, these, these groups that uh, belong to the Islamic resistance in Iraq, they'll gladly lose hundreds of fighters, all right, as long as it's, it's in the name of fighting the United States, okay? So when it comes to this proportionality thing, it's ridiculous, like Brad's saying. So don't have the answer to the, to the question, but I, de- I definitely wanted to highlight that these groups are determined. They're, 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 they're ideologically determined. So this is the difference, I think, right, between the United States and, uh, and, and Iranian-backed groups right now. Hey, Bill, can I jump on the Hamas point real quick if it doesn't Absolutely, take us too right? far off the plan? So, I, I, you know, I, I said what I think one of Iran's uh, grand strategic objectives is evicting U.S. forces from the regions and why they would want to do that. that that's not a brilliant insight by me. Most people understand that, and they, they've been pursuing that for years, not decades. But um, the other element here is is the war in Gaza right now. And and um, uh, if you look at what a lot of people are saying, and there is a there is a sane and reality gap here that we could look at, but depending on which proxies we're looking at, but I, I think it's clear to me at least a core objective of this axis of resistance and the puppet master in Tehran is to stop Israeli military activities in Gaza as quickly as possible. And, and with total deference to Joe on this, who's amazing on these issues more than anybody, for the purpose of helping Hamas survive. For what purpose? To conduct as many October 7th attacks in the future as possible. Oh, that's crazy. Well, they've said they want to do more October 7th. And the Islamic Republic of Iran leaders there have said, we kiss the hands of the people that did October 7th. Oh, that sounds kind of, okay, what's so big about that? Well, it's the largest slaughter of Jews, single day slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. And these people are saying they want to do it again. And so by increase, I think, I wonder, this is a hypothesis I'll put on the wall for others to shoot down. I think among other, other motives, the goal of Iran and this, this axis of resistance is to apply pressure on the Washington by imposing costs on our forces so that we in turn apply pressure on Israel to stop the war in Gaza so that Hamas survive, so that it can do another October 7th attack in the future. I, I think that's what's going on here. And I think Ending the war before we deal as many body blows and destroy as much of Hamas as possible would be a deep, deep, deep mistake, not just for Israel, but also for the United States. And so I think the United States in this moment, as I said, I think on October 8th, you know, again, I'm not eager to quote myself, but on October 7th or 8th, within 24 hours of the attack, I said we need to more or less, I said we need to give Israel the time, the space, and the means to destroy Hamas. And so we have to be the superpower that we are in this moment to give Israel the time, the space, and the means to destroy Hamas, not because it's charity, 
but because Israel is fighting our common adversary that's coming from the same sick ideology that, Bill, you know far better than me as Al-Qaeda and ISIS. No, absolutely. I, you know, Brad, yes, you're, you are 100% correct. Uh, Joe and I, I, I can know I can speak for you, Joe. We, we agree. That is, it isn't just driving the U.S. out. It's getting the U.S. to apply the political pressure on Israel to end the fighting. It's all part of a, of a piece. That's 100% correct. I'm going to turn back to, and, and I do agree with you, Brad. It's all part of, you know, the, it's the, the Iranian ideology is just the Shia side of the, jihadist coin the the sunnis the al-qaeda's the islamic states have their worldview the um the iranian and the shia they have their their own worldview they're both sick and both uh certainly not the create regimes that the we would want to live under but i'm going to go back to you know what would it take and i i unfortunately think what it would take would be would would look like war with with iran um and i want to be very clear on this i don't advocate for this because I don't trust this administration to successfully prosecute it. So we need to be, you know, for everyone who's out there calling for heavy strikes on Israel, going to war with Israel, I do recommend they look at Afghanistan. Uh, they look at what's happening in Ukraine and they look at what's, uh, you know, how we're proceeding in the Gulf of Aden um, as um and, and the inability of this administration to secure a border as well. I mean, they just are not proficient at waging these types of fights. And I'm just wondering what it would, you know, what makes us think we could all of a sudden turn and do it, do it effectively and have the will to do it effectively against Iran. But look, if it was me and I was to do some type of more limited activity, I wouldn't hesitate about striking on Iranian soil. We may disagree here. Um, but I would, I would pick select targets. I would give the Iranians all the warning in the world and tell them your navy's first, then we'll go after, then pick another set of targets. Uh, we'd like to take out your petroleum, uh, capacity, you know, things and just go ahead and do it. That I think we have the ability to do Put a, that, that would impose a real cost on Iran. Iran is not going to actually feel this until it hits them domestically. Nothing frightens a regime like Iran is to hit them in their backyard. They've been playing in other people's backyards and that's what's given them the, the that's what's given them the um the courage and the will to see this fight through. But if you threaten them directly, again, I'm not saying full war with Iran. I'm saying hit specific targets, be very clear about it and then ask them if they want more. I literally would do that. What would you like would you like us to do this next? Do it in a very cold and calculating fashion. Um, and, you know, that, that's what this is what escalation looks like. This is what deterrence would look like, in my opinion. But then again, maybe I'm speaking above my pay grade. Any thoughts? Joe, you want to go yeah, first? Uh, no, no. I mean, they're definitely all I'll say is that Iran's definitely not feeling it right now. And uh, despite whatever, you know, the, the United States has done and. Um, so yeah, it, something has to change, right? And uh, I think our colleague John Shanzer said it yesterday. Uh, he said it best that this is a uh, a big decision right now for the Biden administration what they're going to do, right? So who knows, right? So well, we'll see what happens. But Brad, I defer to you. Yeah, no, Bill. I think there's real. Uh, I'm not trying to suck up to the host here, but I think there's real wisdom uh, in what you said. Um, and my read of modern history with respect to the Islamophobe of Iran 
tells me that when America shows real political will and real military muscle, they back down. Um, we uh, at our Center of Military and Political Power, we cataloged between January of 21 and July of 23, 26 incidences where Iran harassed, attacked, or seized um, uh, ships, be they commercial or U.S. Navy vessels. It was, and, and that's uh, FDD.org if people want to look at it. Um, there you can see the video and pictures and details in each of these 26 incidences. And what jumps out from that are, are two things. One is in terms of maritime aggression and, and threats to freedom of navigation, of course, Islamic Republic of Iran is the arsonist posing as a firefighter, but what, we all know that. But what also jumps out is that when the U.S. Navy shows up and shows strength, they back down. And if, if you don't buy that, if that's too anecdotal, here's another anecdote. Look at the U.S. Army's history of its experience in Iraq. You know, whatever you think about the, the Iraq invasion of 2003, the Islamic Republic of Iran was scared out of their knickers when we did that. Uh, and they backed down when they realized that we were going to not attack into Iran in any way. Then they fired up the, the manufacturing of these explosively formed penetrators and they used the Quds force to smuggle them into Iraq and trained folks in Iraq for the explicit purposes of killing them, penetrating our armored vehicles and killing Americans. And they did that after they realized that we were not that we were going to constrain ourselves. And so um, I think Mark Dubowitz, our CEO, is correct when he says there's a not a long term solution to some of the problems we're seeing until we deal with this radical regime in Tehran. Um, the, the problem is, is that the United the challenge is that, of course, the United States is is dealing with, I think, the most onerous geostrategic environment um, in my lifetime. Uh, if uh, going back to at least World War II, I would say the People's Republic of China is more formidable than the Soviet Union ever was. Um, combine that with Russia, North Korea, Iran, terrorism. Uh, so we have to do things, important things elsewhere, and our resources are not infinite. And while I, I, I agree and disagree with Bridge Colby on many things, where he's right is that our resources are not infinite and we have to establish priorities. Where he's wrong, I think, is when he says that we need to do much, much less in the Middle East than we've already reduced ourselves down to. Because in my view, if we don't keep an economy of force mission there, then we're going to have to come back later at a higher cost. And we're going to get we're, little problems that could have stayed little will become big. So um, I agree with you, Bill. We're going to have to go at the puppet master. I think smart, patriotic people can disagree on the best way to do that. But you notice when I said my list earlier, I was talking about IRGC, yes. not the proxies in Syria. And I was talking about an Iranian naval vessel. You saw, you heard me in full confession, a little reluctant to go into Iran proper. Um, but, um, you know, and, and so there's a little, maybe a little bit of contradiction in what I'm saying. And what you're sensing is me wrestling with difficult issues. And if anyone's rolling in with easy solutions here, then, then I do wonder whether they're, they're, they're not taking enough time to read history and take into account the serious point that you've, you've talked about, Bill, is that don't start something if you don't have the political will to finish it and finish it right. And my read of history is that we got a political will problem in the United States to do hard things. Yeah. And, and Brad, you know, to be clear, if, if we are going to take direct action against Iran, either against the IRGC in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere or on Iranian soil proper, it doesn't, it comes with great risk. And yeah. the U.S. has troops in Iraq. The U.S. has yeah. troops yeah. in Syria. Yeah. Do we keep them? Do we pull them out? Do we reinforce? What are the political costs of that? Um, yeah. There's a lot, you know. You know, the, the, what I found about this job, it's easy to see what's going wrong. It's yeah. hard to recommend, yeah. you know, a path forward. 
Um, yeah. you know, but I don't think you and I and Joe are, we're probably in the same ballpark, right? When it comes to what we need to do, we could probably sit down and craft a strategy and understand the, the risks that are involved with going forward. Uh, but uh, the reality is, is I think what this administration has done is was worse than doing nothing. Yeah. I, I think that they, when, when you take a half hearted, just as you explained with the bull, with the guy trying to steal your wallet. It'd have been better for that guy to either say nothing or fight back, but having a half-hearted response exposes all of your weaknesses, and I think that's where we are today. Uh, this this administration's track record in foreign policy, in my estimation, tell, leads me to believe that we're not going to get a meaningful uh, response to this. I'm very pessimistic, but let's just say I hope I'm wrong. Bill, you know, I do worry very quickly. I do worry that if this administration takes a more tough uh, approach, a response like like the three of us are more or less suggesting, I do worry that, you know, and I'm thinking of Afghanistan here as well, this yeah. may resonate with you, that we haven't done the associated planning to prepare for the response that would seem to be obvious. What do I mean by that? I mean, you know, if anyone's ever been to Manama, Right, and looked at our embassy there and considered the demographics of Bahrain or, or, or been to other consulates around the region. Or if you look at the US troop posture throughout the region, and then you consider the attack on the two bases in northern Iraq in 2020 after the, 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 the belated, overdue, much needed, much laudable assassin killing of Soleimani, who had the blood of so many uh, Americans on his hands. You know, there, there were no Patriot air missile defense systems within range. So we knew those missiles were coming. But because we didn't have appropriate missile defenses within range, you had these Americans having no choice but to simply scramble for cover and wait for impact. And then more than 100 Americans had traumatic brain injury. So if we're going to talk tough and we're going to call for tough policies, then I have an idea. How about we think about how our adversaries are going to respond? And before we take that action, that we make sure we do the force protection measures for the response that almost inevitably is going to come. And if we think that's only going to come against our military bases, and we don't think that it might come against our diplomatic facilities and other things, then maybe we should reconsider doing it, right? Because if you don't, you're going to simply get more American casualties. Brad, it was a real pleasure having you on this week. You're going to be our guest on Friday as well. We'll get a little, we'll talk more of the militias, U.S. military posture in the region, and a lot more. So I'm looking forward to that conversation as well. Bill and Joe, thank you. I consider you both friends and really admire your work. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Brad. Absolutely, Brad. We look forward to more visits from you. It's very insightful. I couldn't agree with you more. We not just need to be thinking about planning an attack on our adversary, but how we could defend it. That is something, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, you stand in a conversation here, but you're right. We, we planned the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but didn't plan on the consequences of that withdrawal. And uh, I think we all saw how well that worked out for us. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.